0: What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back, or welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup providing on-demand intelligence featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vidit Agarwal, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode, 152, I'm speaking with Holly Kramer. Continuing our trend lately of convincing relatable role models that don't do many public interviews, to share their life and work story. Holly is an experienced non-executive director and chief executive with extensive experience in retail and consumer markets across a range of industries and countries. She's on the boards of leading companies such as and ANZ, Fonterra and more and is a former CEO of Best and Less and has more than 25 years experience in general management, marketing and sales including roles at the Ford. Motor Company in the US and Australia, Telstra and Pacific Brands. Holly was born in Billings, Montana in the US and currently lives in the Southern Highlands just outside Sydney in Australia. Learn about Holly's sunrise in Billings, Montana with deep connection to nature, with access to camping, skiing, fishing and more. Holly shared the influences of her parents, her dad, a doctor and mum having scholarships to Ivy League universities, giving that up to be a stay-at-home mum to Holly and her brother. In this candid conversation, we cover Holly's relationship with money growing up, and the fascinating story behind her move to Australia post-university, how she met her husband, her transition from the car industry at Ford to Telecom at Delstra as marketing director, and fun fact, she worked for a previous guest of the show, Daniel Petrie, in between those roles. I found Holly's comment intriguing, and she never really plans anything. She just jumps at opportunities when they come up. And I was pleasantly surprised about her answer to my question on whether she's built up more courage as she's become more senior in her career. Particularly areas that stand out from this conversation include Holly's learnings from a former prominent public company CEO and reflecting on stories of dealing with conflict, leaving Telstra to join Best and Less when it was struggling and why she wanted to manage a P&L and a business end to end, rather than just a function. The incredible role numerous mentors have played in opening doors for her career moves, opening in sectors that she's new to. Reflecting back in 2012, and setting up the foundations for her successful board career since, which has included AMP, Australia Post, Woolworths, ANZ, and more. The desire to build a family and a rare inside view into how boards operate, a number of aspects that a lot of you may not know about, the most challenging experience she had during her time on the MP board, and her current focus on helping companies with their climate and sustainability strategy, and why that's important. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Holy Kramer, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Bidit. Glad to be here.
0: I'm excited to do this. A lot of previous guests have highly recommended you and I have learned that you've worked with a few of our guests back in the day. So this should be, this should be really fun. Why don't we start with our fun facts to set the scene? Where were you born and where do you live now?
1: Well, I was, I was actually born in Minneapolis, as my mom always says, on the banks of the Mississippi River, Missouri. Well, I don't know. Now I can't remember. Big river. <laughs> but I grew up in a town called Billings, Montana from about year one through to high school. So that's, that's pretty much where I'm from is Montana. And now I live in a town, a tiny town called Glen Quarry, which is in the southern highlands of New South Wales, so about an hour and a half south of Sydney.
0: Mm, very cool. And from a work perspective, what was your first job and what do you do now?
1: First job, well... Apart from all of the usual first jobs that everyone has, like babysitting and working at the local, we call them drugstores, but chemists, I guess, and teaching swimming lessons and all and waitressing and all that, because I, I always worked through high school. My first sort of real job out of uni was working for an organization called Citizen Exchange Council and I I sort of love this story, but I don't because it really dates me because it was during the Cold War when, and I don't know how many Australians know this, but Americans were not allowed to travel to the U.S well, USSR, the Soviet Union at the time. And so the only way you could go was through sort of a sponsored trip as like a group of teachers or a group of nurses or a group of students. And so I went to work for them out of university, setting up exchange programs between universities. So I went to Yale University and we set up an exchange with Moscow University. And then they brought me on and we got some grants to set up. 10 different university pairings between American and Soviet um, universities at the time. So I was living in New York City, setting those up, also doing fundraising for this organization. So it was really pretty incredible job, I guess, for a a, uh, a 21-year-old.
0: Very cool. And how would you describe your various roles now? Maybe a better question, Holly, is how do you introduce yourself when you meet someone at an event and they go, Holly, what do you do? How do you introduce yourself?
1: Oh, I'm a full-time board director is what I say. It doesn't sound very exciting, but yeah, I've I've transitioned from being a full-time executive to being a full-time board director. So I'm on a range of public and private companies and not-for-profit boards and and so it keeps me pretty busy.
0: Mm. We will talk about some of those shortly. And Holly, as you know, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer. Is there a high flyer you know who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve?
1: Uh, you know, I had a chance to think about this question because I've listened to so many of your other podcasts. With it and they're all fantastic. And, you know, I couldn't think of an individual, but I'll tell you who I think doesn't get the recognition they deserve. And maybe this is not surprising, given that I'm on a board of a large retail company. But, I, you know, I just think retail and frontline workers are absolutely heroic and, you know people you come in you do your shop at Woolies say and you check out and you talk to that one person for you know maybe 3 to 5 minutes but that person is doing that all day long with different people and i think people forget that you know they're they're real people you know my daughter was a, a Woolies checkout person and you know most people are okay but people can be rude people can be condescending and you know, I really hit home. Sorry, it's a long answer, but it's really hit home during COVID when, you know, I went out and actually volunteered at my local Woolies just because so much was going on. And as a director, I was kind of concerned about the whole work environment that they were in. And, you know, it was just extraordinary. You know, everyone, most of us executives were all tough safely at home during COVID. But you know, those workers were right out at the front line every day as an essential service. So yeah, that's who that's who I think deserves recognition and probably probably doesn't, doesn't get it as often as they should.
0: I completely agree. I, I spent a number of years early in my career working for the red competitor to to and I and I spent time in stores. I think every year you'd have to do four weeks in stores, which is a great policy that I think all the retailers have. And I was blown away by the level of work involved. And, and like you said, we're shielded sitting in the office often and going to stores and just speaking to customers and getting yelled at by a mom who can't get yogurt for her daughter after school and and the like is, is a real reality check. So I completely agree with you, Holly. I, I want to one back the clock and go back to your sunrise, as I call it, your childhood. And you spoke about growing up in the US, in, in Minneapolis, and then Montana. What are your memories of the environment and the influence of family?
1: Look, I was, you know, I had a pretty, I think, wonderful childhood. I was lucky to grow up in a town like Billings, about 100,000. So, you know, it wasn't too small, wasn't too big. It was in the beautiful state of Montana. So, you know, we had access to lots of hiking and camping and skiing and, and all that sort of thing. My parents actually both grew up in Boston. And so they were real pioneers in the day because when they moved out, which would now be 60, 50, 60 years ago. Of 50 years ago, they, you know, left big families behind on the East Coast. And in those days, travel was expensive, you know, phone, long distance phone calls were expensive. And so they really went you know out like pioneers into the wild west and so we were a small family unit just my parents and my brother and I with with many relatives but they were very far away so you know i think my parents also tried to get the most out of montana so we did lots of you know hiking and camping and fishing and and making the most of of montana so, you know, I had a also just a very the kind of American childhood that you see on TV shows, right? You know, I went to the big high school with all the lockers down the hall that you would see on virtually every Nickelodeon or Disney program. <laughs> you know, I had a I had quite a A good time as a child, I was sort of, I always kind of fit between two worlds. One was, you know, I was a cheerleader and, you know, I was very social and sort of had had a good time in that regard. On the other hand, I was a bit nerdy and, you know, I did something called extemporaneous speaking, which is kind of like debating and I was in the youth legislature. And I, so I was kind of always active on lots of fronts. And yeah, I really, my parents were, look, Probably the tough bit was my parents had very tumultuous relationships. So I guess if there was any stress or strain growing up, it was growing up in a household where there was literally screaming, fighting every night. But I think when you're a child, you don't know that other households are different. So that just is, I guess, normal. But my dad was a, a doctor, and so we didn't see him so much. My mom, had been incredibly smart as a child, had gotten scholarships to Ivy League schools despite being very poor and had an amazing career ahead of her with a scholarship to get a PhD. And then she gave all that up to be a stay-at-home mom, which I think is not an unusual story for a mom in that era, you know? And so she was a really interesting mom because, you know, she was a wonderful stay-at-home mom and we had a really good relationship. But I think she was always sort of sad and unfulfilled because she, you know, had had given up so much.
0: Thank you for sharing that and appreciate the the candid response. My my mum chose to be a stay-at-home mum as well until I was 21. And I think as I've gotten older, I appreciated that. Just to your point, when I was younger, I thought that was just normal. But, but then I saw my other friends and they didn't have a stay-at-home mum who chose to do that. So I completely agree. When you think about influences growing up, who comes to mind was it family or was it your cousins or did you watch a lot of TV who who do you think shaped you in your early upbringing
1: Look I think I think my parents to a very large extent you know I think they it, 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 it's hard to kind of they did. Your parents sometimes don't say these things exactly to you, but I think you just, you know, I saw them as either successful career people or could have been successful career people. So that gave me real drive and aspiration. They also, I think came from very you know poor backgrounds, and so very much valued what they were able to achieve and what they had and so they always volunteered and they always gave back and they were always kind of recognizing that you know we we don't take for granted what we have, so I think they certainly instilled that in me at a young age and then I just had some amazing teachers you know I had a a science teacher who you know, just created this love of learning. And I had an English teacher who at the time I despised because everything I submitted, you know, I wrote in this big flowery high school style language and I thought I was just the most magnificent writer and it would come back with red ink, just, you know, Uh over 95% of it. And he would say, all that superfluous, you just need to say what you're trying to say. So I think in later years, he's made me a very picky writer, but, but certainly had a huge lifelong influence.
0: So interesting. You've mentioned a couple of times about your parents coming from a fairly humble upbringing. How did that shape your relationship with money? This is something that I reflect on. And I think growing up, I never understood that. And and I came from a good childhood and parents did well, but my parents never made me feel like we had a lot of money. But looking back, they did all right. What was your relationship with money? Was that something that was talked about at the dinner table?
1: No, no, not at all. I mean, you know, I think, actually, I've been meaning to ask my mum because I, I can't remember. I think we had allowances, but, you know, I do. My first big uh, recognition was when they, you know, funded my college education, which, you know, even in those days was was quite a substantial investment. And, you know, I don't know if I appreciated what an extraordinary gift that was. Um, But the funny thing about money was where I lived in this town, you know, I lived on the nicer part of town because my dad was a doctor. So I sort of grew up thinking I was really rich. Like, you know, my friends called me rich. Everyone said we were rich. And my parents were like, well, you know, we should be really grateful for what we have. And then I went to university and (laughs) man, oh, man, I was not rich. I was, you know, a very comfortable middle-class kid, but, you know, the sort of extremes of wealth were were quite breathtaking, really, you know. And so, nonetheless, I really have never in my career made choices because of the money. And, And a lot of my job and career choices have been to take lesser paying roles. You know, I think I've probably never really been on the front foot, you know, saying I want more money, or I should get more out of this deal probably took me a long time to understand that I should be making wiser investments than just kind of keeping everything in a safe fund, because my parents were very um, conservative. So I've had to grow into that uh, over the course of my career. So, you know, I think my relationship to money is I'm very grateful to have it. I think I've worked and learned how to look after it more importantly, uh, more, more carefully, but I don't, it doesn't define success. It doesn't define me. And I, you know, just feel fortunate all the time. To have what I have, actually, on that point, though, one of the most important—I'll I'll preempt a question of yours—about what the most important people in my life and most important learnings when yeah. I was at Ford Motor Company, which was kind of my first real, real corporate job out of business school, I had a mentor who was a woman who was the most senior woman in the, all of the automotive industry. She ran the Ford division of Ford Motor Company, and I remember asking her why it was that all the executives seemed to be very reticent to speak the truth or they towed the party line. And she was a real driver. She always spoke her mind. She was just an incredible person and very different, you know, sort of very careful corporate type. And I said, what makes you that way? And she said, well, we don't have any kids. My husband and I have done well and we have financial security. And she said, financial security buys you so many choices in life. You can... Well, you can give up your job and start a podcast, or you can, you know, leave a a company when you don't feel aligned to their values, or, you know, just even if something terrible happens, I think one of the first things you have to know is that you can look after yourself or your family. And so I think, you know, the the thing about money is, you know, a lot of people look at how much do I want, how much do I need, but I think having enough to make sure that you've got that base level of financial security just buys you a lot of options and a lot of freedom in your life.
0: Mm, that's such a well-reflected well, well reflected answer, Holly. Thank you for sharing. And that reminds me, I, I hosted a panel recently at a live event and we had two guests or one name and they spoke their mind exactly for this reason because they had financial independence. So I, I completely agree. I, I want to Fast forward a bit and talk about university and how that impacted you. Because I think what's interesting about your journey is, if my research is correct, you did a bachelor's in political science at Yale and then you did an MBA. Like that, on the surface, doesn't seem like a traditional progression to go from political science to business and marketing. Can you talk about that? How did that progression happen?
1: Well, my my actually it was a joint degree of economics and political science. I worked in that not for profit, which I said that Citizens Exchange Council in New York City and. While I really loved what we were doing and I loved the organization, the not-for-profit world in those days and in that particular example, you know, wasn't particularly well-run. And I thought, gosh, if you want to be effective in your objectives in an organization, you really need to know how to run it profitably, run it sustainably. And so, you know, I I wound up getting offered a a scholarship to do an MBA at Georgetown. So I thought, well, I don't know if I want to go into business because no one in my family had been in business. My mom hadn't been in business. My dad hadn't. Nobody. So I didn't know what business was but i knew that being able to run things well would probably be a good skill so hence i landed in business school
0: we we talk a lot about magic moments on the show holly and i think the first one you had is fascinating post uni where a lot of people suggested to ask about your time at ford and how you ended up in australia because you did not want to go to detroit is is my understanding and then i understand you got to australia and you were blown away by how the culture was not Privilege, and there were no lifts and lunch rooms. Talk about that. So you did an MBA at Georgetown, and then how did the move to Australia happen?
1: Well, I I did a summer internship while I was at business school at. Ford, just simply because I was looking for a summer internship, you know, just complete and utter serendipity. A friend had had a job there. But then I met that woman that I talked about. Her name was Bobby Colligant, and she became such an extraordinary mentor to me that when I finished, she said, look, we'd love for you to come back to Ford. And at that time, they hadn't. their marketing organization was really filled with people who had been in sales their whole career. And then if you were out in the field and you were great at sales and you sold lots of cars to Ford dealers you would all of a sudden wind up in Detroit in a marketing department without really any formal training. So they were hiring people who had marketing training. And so because I'd done my MBA in marketing, she brought me back to Ford. And I did have a fantastic time. I have had amazing opportunities at Ford. I did the first big piece of customer research in the Ford truck division. The trucks had never had power windows, never had nicene, never had anything because they thought trucks were work vehicles. And I went out around the country and took all these photos and did all this work to show the thousands that people were pouring into their trucks to make them actually luxury vehicles. So, you know, I had some just unbelievable opportunities and experiences in those days because of that program, I guess, and just because, you know, I never wait for permission to do anything. I just go do it. So awesome. So then she said to me, you need to go work out on the front line. And you'll, This is kind of a, a theme through my career, but, but Bobby said to me, you can't sit in head office and understand how the car industry works. You've got to work with Ford dealers. You've got to go out in the field. You've got to call on Ford dealers. So from everyone's perspective, that was a huge backward step to go out and you know be just a sales rep. So I went and lived in Dallas and I had a little red Ford Mustang and I drove around from car dealer to car dealer to car dealer every day, just trying to wholesale them cars. Best learning experience ever and so powerful. But what I found was I love being out in Texas. I love working with the dealers and I was not a big fan of Detroit and I did not want to go back to that big corporate office. So I had a bit of wanderlust in me and said, Hey, you know, actually it was an Australian running the company at the time, a guy named Jack Nasser, And he said I think that what all people at Ford need to succeed in their careers is an opportunity working overseas because it's too parochial. Everyone's too Detroit-centric. And so my desire to progress in my career came at exactly the right time, put my hand up and said, I will be one of those people, send me overseas and send me anywhere. You know, I didn't say this to them pretty much anywhere, but Detroit. And so a few months later, I got a phone call, did I want to go to Australia? Had never in my life thought of going to Australia, but what the heck? Sounds like fun, and off I went. And and that part of the story is true. Like I landed in Australia, and within a week, I literally thought, "This is my country. These are my people. I love the sense of humor. I love the focus on sport. People are laid back. You know, it's a enterprising. I don't know. Just loved everything about it. So- I believe it <laughs> gave
0: you your it gave you your life partner as well. You met someone in the marketing department at Ford.
1: Well, I was I was running marketing at Ford, and he actually worked at, at News Corp. He was he was in advertising sales, so we did meet through work.
0: Yeah, very very cool, very cool. And, and you were kind enough to put me in touch, put me in touch with him, so I had a great great chat prior to this. I, I want to move into your transition post Ford because I think, and I think also just career stints because you were at Ford for eight years, if I understand correctly, and then you did a couple of roles, and then you were Telstra for almost nine years. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it was Ford was five years in the US, three years here in Australia. After three years, that's a typical overseas assignment time. So it was back to Detroit again. So I think that's the challenge for multinationals is, you know, you're always going to wind up. If you do well, you're always going to go back to home base. So I realized that I needed to find a role in Australia. So I moved to Sydney because that is where Mal was. And then I did a very brief stint working for your other guest, Daniel Petri. He ran the company, so that was kind of my first Sydney job. Was for about a year helping him with all of his marketing and PR and 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 building bridges between new media and old media because the old media folks at PBL at the time were not big fans so much of Jeremy in the new world. So that was a really great time, and he's an amazing guy. So people should listen to that podcast. But anyway, yeah. And then I got recruited to go to Telstra, which was just out of the blue. Got called from a, a headhunter and. I couldn't imagine why anyone would want me to go into telecommunications. I knew nothing about it. So I said, oh, no, I don't think so. And then my husband said to me, well, you know, that is the biggest marketing job in Australia at the moment. And I went, oh, really? He said, you really ought to talk to them. And so there was a guy named Ted Pretty who was kind of the digital guru back in whatever it was, 1999. And I went and talked with him, and he was very inspirational and really wanting to make big changes at Teltra. And so, yeah, that was how I made that transition. And I stayed there for the most unbelievable 10 years. You know, I started out in marketing and we were marketing fixed line calling plans. I don't know if anyone out there remembers like the Easy Saver Plus, but that was it, you you know, and STD was when you were calling interstate (laughs) distance. Um, And that's what I was doing. And then 10 years later, everyone was on mobiles. It was Big Pond, it was digital services. It was most extraordinary era to be in telecommunications. So, you know, I was super grateful for that opportunity. But as you can tell, I never really plan anything. I just jump to opportunities when they come up.
0: I, I do want to read a line that came up in my research, is that from 1999 to 2009, Holly was part of the Telstra executive team during the infamous and often controversial leadership period of American CEO Sol Trilogia? I might might get the spelling wrong. I, I don't want to talk about the CEO because that, that's probably in the past, but what were your learnings from that environment? Was that more on a people level or was it more execution or strategy when you reflect on that?
1: Look, Saul Trujillo, that era, was really an interesting one. He was much maligned by the Australian media. He I didn't think quite understood how Australia operated. And so he got off to a very bad start with both the media and the government. And it's not really great for the CEO of a big public company to have both the media and the government offside. But what I learned, how I learned so much from him as a business leader, you know, he, he was the one who initially said... You know, this big company shouldn't just be cutting costs, you know, each year and shrinking. It should be growing its way to greatness because it has such extraordinary assets. So he just did a 180 in terms of Telstra's view of itself, which was just, oh, we're too big. We need to cut costs. We're, you know, and it was just sort of this downward spiral. He said, we have the opportunity to be the best telco in the world. And that just completely transformed how we thought about ourselves. He also had an eye to the future and he was the one who said, Fixed lines are going. Mobile is the future. And when we built the next G network, it was literally the best mobile network in the world. And so it was just thrilling to be a part of, you know, something where someone had so much vision, where they took huge bets and huge gambles on the future. But he also taught me personally, like he would. I remember him hauling me in after a meeting and I was petrified because he was very intimidating. <laughs> I say all this admiration, but he was bloody intimidating. And he just called me in one day and he said and I said to him, We aren't able to find handsets for this new network because it's on a different frequency. And I don't I don't think we'll be able to go ahead. And he just basically said to me you do not take no for an answer. Don't you dare take no for an answer. I don't want to hear you say no until you've been out and you've, you know, and you just went, you know, you blah, blah, you need to go, to go, try this. Da, 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 da. And what a lesson, you know, like to just sort of take no at first blush was, yeah. I mean, that's how he made incredible things happen. So, so I learned, I learned a lot from him. I mean, the other part of it was that, you know, you can't in a, in a country like Australia, you can't build up enemies. And and ultimately, you know, it became his undoing. So, you know, I liked his independence and his fiery attitude, but, you know, it was kind of unfortunate because I think it, it, it caused more problems in the end.
0: Can I double click on that? Ollie, that, that situation where a leader says, This is what I'm expected of you and go and go do it. And and I know I said to you, I'd love to talk about board dynamics and, and dealing with different personalities. How how did you deal with that? And I think post that a lot of people have said you're very good at understanding people, building relationships, having open communication. Was that a turning point that did you walk away from that meeting going, Cool, I need to find a mentor who can help me develop this skill?
1: Um Well, maybe not that directly. There were two things there because he did it another time and both of them scared the living, you know, daylights out of me. (laughs) The other one was when he called me in after an executive meeting and said, You know, I can see that you don't agree with people, but I was sort of at that point, my portfolio was more junior to the others and I was newer to the senior exec team and I was female. And there were some very large male personalities in the room. And he basically said to me, if you don't speak up, if you don't argue your point, there's no point in you being in there because you're not contributing. And so, you know, he basically said, get the you know what's and and, you know, grow some confidence and sit up in your seat and hold people to account. So he like, honestly, some of the most important um, lessons came from that. Now, at the time, it was, you know, you immediately get the feedback and you, you, you know, you don't know what to do with it. And is it the right feedback? And how do I do that? And so, So it took me a while, but I I did. He he had a two IC who I would often kind of go around to after I had my terrifying moment with Saul. I'd go around to Greg and go, Greg, this is what Saul said. You know, how do I do this? So I think you know, I had to get out of the shock, and then I had to kind of you know understand what he was really trying to tell me, and then and then it just stuck in my brain, and it always has. So you know, those are your most powerful lessons when people tell you something, and you kind of reflect back on it at so many stages through your career in so many different instances i
0: am curious because at this point i'm assuming you were 20 years into your career so you're quite quite senior right like you were i think you were as you said on the senior leadership team did you feel senior at this point like i'm just curious what was your mindset like 20 years in with the ford role (laughs)
1: telstra i used to are you probably i don't even do you even Remember phone books? Remember big phone I books? I do, yes, the yellow <laughs> phone books, yes. <laughs> big phone books. So I remember telling people that when I sat, and it was, you know, our executive table was a big, you know, a room with a big, huge round table. And I remember saying, I feel like I'm in that room, like one of the kids at the grown-up table, and I need, like, to be sitting on a couple of phone books to get <laughs> me up to the height of the others. And, you know, it was kind of metaphorical. Maybe it was actually, you know, a, a, uh true because, you know, I'm not not as tall as those guys were, but I just, yeah, I I felt I had imposter syndrome for sure, you know, like, what am I doing here? How did I get to this level? Should I really been promoted to, you know, these guys all seem so confident and I think, you know, it's it's a much cliched discussion about women and women in business, but you know I was the absolute poster child for that cliche about imposter syndrome, you know not having the confidence and that's really Saul in his very um, ungentle way kind of you know kicked me in the backside into into realizing that you know you, you people see you as you see yourself. so you mm. know I needed those phone books. I needed to sit up straight at the table and and really kind of speak my piece and hold my ground. Mm.
0: Mm. No, thank you for sharing that. I mean, we spoke earlier about retail. I spent three years at the Coles head office, and that was a, a kick up the backside every day for us in the Monday meetings, having to know my margin and 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 sales figures. And it was a great learning experience working with some really experienced but sometimes challenging leaders. So, thank you for sharing that. I want to read out another line that came across in my research is. Popular Australian clothes and household linens company Best and Less was struggling to turn a profit in 2012. Then came Yale educated CEO Holly Kramer. Now, you were doing well at Telstra it sounds like you had a lot of success. You probably had other roles. How did you decide to leave that and join a unprofitable company where you probably had high expectations?
1: Well, look, I had been at Telstra for yeah, almost 10 years and I actually felt like I had reached the glass ceiling. I, I didn't see myself moving into the top job and and I didn't really, yeah. So I felt it would be best for me to take a change. And part of the reason for that was actually that all of my jobs had been in functional roles. So I'd run product and marketing, but I hadn't had a P&L. And so one of the toughest transitions in a career is to move out of a function and to try to get full PL businessing experience. And so I went to the search firms and said, Look, I'd like to make a change. I'd like to run a PL business and probably not in telco because you're either at Telstra or, you know, there's small businesses around. And they said, That is too hard. You cannot both change into a PL role and change industry at the same time. So with that great encouragement, <laughs> I thought, well, maybe I'll give it a little bit of a go. And, you know, again, yes, you make your own luck, but I had some amazing luck because a good friend of mine, a woman named Maureen klavsik Carriage, who has since died of cancer, but was one of my super amazing mentors, said to Sue Morfit, who was the female CEO of of Pacific Brands at that time, I know someone, she wants to move. She's never run a P&L. She's never been in this industry, but if I were you, I'd back her. And Sue took her word for it and she backed me. And I ran the homewares businesses and the uniforms businesses at Pacific Brands for a couple of years. And so it was while I was there that I got kind of, you know, CEO type experience. And from there I got the best and last job. And so that was just an unbelievable opportunity for me, you know, to take a a business, to have the opportunity to be CEO, a business that was struggling. So, you know, it was an opportunity to turn it around. The only issue was that i had never worked in retail before. So, you know, the guy who hired me, I think was probably took one of the biggest gutsiest calls that I've ever imagined anyone taking was to hire me without having CEO experience or having retail experience. And probably the second gutsiest or dumbest person was me for actually agreeing to do it. But, you know, it was, it was such a great Mm -hmm. opportunity to kind of run a business the way I wanted to run it, which is to build just an amazing culture. I'd always heard about, you know, businesses that were led by the values and had a great culture and hired great people and focused on the customer and all the stuff you learned about in business school and then don't quite always see in practice that way. So this was like my test case to run a business the way I wanted to run it. And it was nearly broke and And I had an amazing team and I knew very little, they knew a lot, but I learned how to listen and so we made great decisions together and we managed to turn that business around was you know certainly the highlight of my career, I would say.
0: Mm, good, kudos to you. I mean, having worked in retail, I know how hard that is to turn a business into profitability, especially in fashion and, and um, clothing. So kudos to you for, for doing that. I want <clears throat> to go into the second half of 2012 when you were coming up towards the end of your tenure at Pacific Brands. And I think post that, you did your board career. So that takes us into your second phase and current phase of your career, which we've had a lot of guests on the show who are operational leaders and they want to go down the path you've gone down, or they've tried to and they haven't succeeded. Again, kudos to you for for doing that reinvention of of sorts. When you think back on that, 2012 timeframe. What did you do? Like, if you had to tactically share a couple of things you did to set yourself up for this next phase of your career, what was that?
1: Well, I think there's a few things. One, the one thing that helped me the most in terms of being able to secure, you know, good, good quality board roles relatively quickly after I sort of decided to move into the board stage was that I was coming from the position of being a CEO of a, you know, reasonable sized business and having done a turnaround. So had I, cause I, I had offers to, to look at boards when I came out of Telstra, but I would have never have had a full P&L experience. I would have only has come from a head of marketing from Telstra. And I learned so much over those periods at, at Pack Brands and Best in Less that, you know, it was just really important that I stay on and reach the you know highest possible level in my executive career. So when I, came out and was looking for board roles that was at a period where the gender balance on boards was pretty poor and they were looking for women but there weren't that many women who had made it all the way kind of to being a chief executive or running a large P&L so I think it was that longevity in my uh, executive career that was really important Um, also because I'd been in different businesses in different industries one of the tricks I sort of learned what I thought was late in my career but it turned out it wasn't too late was the importance of networks particularly in a country like Australia. So because I'd been in, you know, come in automotive and then I went into telco and then I was in wholesale and retail. And, you know, I actually had quite a broad network. Also like people. So I didn't think I particularly called it networking, but I I stayed in touch with a lot of people that I worked with and got to know. People like, you know, Patty copians who I know you spoke to, who I knew through various stages in my career. But, you know, she and I, and she's just an example of so many people that I met, really liked and admired over the years, stayed in contact with. And then as it turned out, when I went out to look for board roles, I did have a reasonable network of people, and it wasn't that those people just get you jobs, but those people will back you in and they'll vouch for you. And I think that's also what's really important. And I had had a bit of board experience, because as I think I told you in the very beginning, you know, giving back is always important. So I had been on not-for-profit boards right through my corporate career, so I had had some board experience. I wasn't going in completely cold.
0: Mm. Before I get into double-clicking on some of your board experiences, I want to pause and talk about some of the life experiences at this point, because I'm a big believer in that your life has to be in order for you to have done all these all these roles. And Mal talked about you're big into running and hiking. He talked about jigsaw puzzles that you picked up from your dad and, and other themes. And I think through COVID, you were cooking and things a lot. But COVID obviously was much later. Your first board roles were, I think, in 20. 2015 or 2014. So when you think back up to 2014, and by this point, you were what, 25, 30 years into your career, I would, I would assume, um, without putting a timestamp around it. What what were those non-work experiences? Were they, like How did you structure that? Did you and Mal take holidays every year? Or did you do any courses? Was that important to you? Or were you fully focused on your career?
1: Well, probably the most important thing that I did was say to Mel, look, I, what is really the most important thing in my whole life is that I have a child. So one way or another, <laughs> we need to get moving and we need to have, a, a, I would, it it would be a big regret in my life if I didn't have the opportunity to have a child. And so I did recognize at that point that, whatever it was going to take in terms of career hiatus, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, the choices that the two of us were going to have to make, that that was like really, really, really important. And, you know, forever grateful that we did. Now, he has three kids from his first marriage who are absolutely fabulous. And, you know, I feel incredibly blessed to have had one of my own, but to have quite a big family as well with all of their kids. It's it's really wonderful. But, you know, I guess the experience of, of being a mother yourself, you know, is is pretty unique. So that was super important to me. But you know, we gotta live in nanny because I did wanna continue on in my career. And I know for for a lot of women that's kind of a tough choice, but remember I had a mom who had given it all up. And so I kind of felt like, you know, my daughter will have a mom who, you know, has managed to to have a career and through the help of a supportive husband and a fantastic nanny, you know, raised a child as well. And, you know, there's only a million times that she said how terrible that is. But I I, I think in the end, she'll, she'll come around. Uh, but yeah, so I think it was that, you know, the rest is downtime. And Mal might have told you, I'm not great at downtime. So, you know, being busy not working is how I relax when I'm not working. So whether that is kind of, being out in my veggie garden, teaching myself to cook, doing puzzles. You know, I don't know. I find a million things to do all the time. But to me, that that's relaxing, <laughs> doing things but not work.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm exactly the same. I, I struggle to – my switch off is learning about something or sitting up on YouTube late at night and, and watching an educational video. And my partner, she struggles with that because oh, wow. switching off. <laughs> they
1: other super geeks. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah let's go let's go into your board experience I think there's a lot there that you can share with our audience that that you've learned and and as I said at the start I think you're unique in that you've had a lot of success in this place and a lot of people vouch for you so congrats to you on that is when you think about joining a board i mean malik you said this he said ask holly about conducting due diligence before joining a board and and maybe that happens later in your board career when you've built your profile was early on you probably maybe say yes to whatever you get is that is that a fair assumption does it does it translate as you get as you get more experienced
1: actually no i I think you have to do your best due diligence that you can before you even join your first board You, you know you just can't kind of grab any board i have kind of a a, an interesting take on due diligence i think that there's some obvious warning signs that you know everyone can see like you know if it's a company that's had a hugely troubled past or It's a company that, you know, it's very clear that they've got some major issue with their industry segment or, you know, there's, there's lots of warning signs when companies are not going well or they're, you know, have very weak balance sheets or, you know, things like that, you know, and then you just have to be well aware that if you... See that there are challenges, you need to kind of recognize that you're willing to take that risk. So I think it's not just about saying no if anything looks shaky, but it's being well aware that things could happen from what you can see is obvious. The other, I think, really important due diligence is to meet the people. So you've got to meet the chair, most importantly, and the CEO, second most importantly. And then the other board directors, and you have to feel like these are people that if I should go through a crisis, these are people I'm comfortable to work with. Now, the big caveat to that is that people change. So I got on a board and within six months, someone took out the chair and there was like a coup. And all of a sudden it wasn't the people I thought I'd signed up to work for. You know, mm-hmm. the next board CEO, you know, a month after I joined says, I'm leaving. And so you've got to go through a whole CEO. Search. So you just, you can't, you do the best you can with due diligence. Also, you could look at a company that looks crystal clear, perfect. And then, you know, some black swan. And so I think you have to recognize that it's important to do due diligence and not miss the obvious kind of potential pitfalls, but there's plenty that you're not going to know before you go in and therefore you need to have a healthy kind of risk appetite to be honest
0: are there are there certain patterns you've seen when you whether colleagues on boards with you that have gone from operational roles to board roles i I would assume that's a big transition in terms of personality but also on what to focus on because you've done operational roles where you Get executional ability, whereas as board roles, you often don't. What have you seen that's been the biggest mistake people have made when they make that transition?
1: It's a tough transition from executive to board, and you know the the, the obvious pitfall is that you don't kind of accept that you're in a different role and that you are not the one who's meant to be, you know, um, executing, and that you're not to be giving instructions or, you know, you're, you're there kind of to ensure that the governance is right, but the CEO runs the company. And I think boards are constantly, and the good boards too are constantly, you know, Overtly discussing with themselves, what's the line here? Okay, no, that's right. We don't get involved. We should get involved here. You get involved there. But then a good CEO takes their board on the journey, and involves them in that discussion. So, you know, but the line is quite clear. And I think it takes people a while to, you know, appreciate that. People like me who leave executive life also have a hard time because we miss executive life. It's very different on executive life. You're you're a sole operator and all of a sudden you don't have all the trappings, you don't have the team, you don't have the goals and objectives that, you know, are yours to achieve. So it's very different. And I think I underestimated that. And I spent my first couple of years as a director really missing being an executive. So I think you you should not leave your executive life too early, but, you know, I think the flip side to that is that, you know, executives learn a lot, you know, MBWA, managed by walking around particularly in retail as you would know you know you can't just look at what's written on the paper or what comes out of the reports you've got to walk the stores you've got to talk to people you've got to have a close connection board directors really you know are meant to kind of stay separated but i've found that you need to find ways as a board director to connect with the front line and whether you're just asking can i go sit on the call center whether you're at woolies and you shop there every week whatever mechanism you find, I know as an operator that the truth, you know, lies in the reality of the operations and you need to get out there. I chair safety committees, you've got to go walk the, you know, the the factories and the plants and the stores and the buildings, you need to be out there knowing what's going on.
0: Mm. Holly, I think there's a perception about board roles where people assume it's sitting in air-conditioned offices and you attend 10 or 12 meetings a year and the rest is all rosy and I'm sure that's not reality. So can you demystify what are the behind the scenes of a board director role outside of just attending those 10 meetings that you see in a table on annual report?
1: Well, I mean, if you look at, see, I look at this as my sort of next phase of my career. I've had all these different phases. So to me, it's a full-time job. And with, you know, a couple of big boards, it's Full-time job. That is partly because for that one-day meeting, you have at least a day or two of reading. And you, you mentioned when we were chatting it, it, before we started recording, 500 pages. Oh no, that's like a thousand pages <laughs> for some, you know, board and committee meetings. So it's a lot of reading, and you've got to carve out days and then be prepared to just, you know, sit and read board papers. Then on top of that, there's committees and most boards I've, I I chair committees on all my boards, chairing committees is a lot of meeting time, doing pre-work, working with the team, deciding agendas and stuff like that. And then for me, it's also learning. You can't just assume that the, the, the knowledge you need will all come from what's presented to you in a board meeting. So you've got to keep educating yourself and There's lots of opportunities to do that most boards will fund you if you want to take courses but lots of the professional services firms offer you know events and and speakers and and industry forums so you know it's full-time job
0: i I want to ask about the concept of buy-in so early in my career not in boards but say i'd go present to the senior leadership team and i hadn't talked to any of them or socialized my idea prior and i'd go present it and most of the times it gets shot down and I always thought it was me. And then you shared your For example when I'd speak to senior leaders one-on-one that say, Vida, you never told us about this idea in the prior to the meeting. You came to the meeting and presented it and sort of surprised us. I, I'm assuming there'd be an element to that in board meetings where you speak to the other board members or the executives in the company prior. Is that something you encourage and you share that with up-and-coming board members that they should come to you and socialize an idea prior to a meeting?
1: There's a bit of a yes and a no. I mean, the... Technically, best practice is, is not to do lots of socializing outside the board meeting. It is to p- present the information, have everyone read and absorb the information. You can make phone calls to people if you don't understand things, you need more information. But really, most of that discussion should happen in the boardroom because if it doesn't, it can... It, in, in dysfunctional boards, it can devolve into, you know, like, I really want to do this. So I'm going to call my three board directors and get them on side. So it's it's actually not best practice. Uh, however, if they're You know, often chairs will have sessions at the beginning of a meeting, so you can kind of get everyone on one page, or often I'll call the chair if something's come through that a paper I just think is completely wrong or doesn't have the right information or I'm really opposed to it, I will call the chair ahead and say, look, I think we need to have a discussion about this rather than just having the paper coming in cold. So there are ways to do that, but there's not a whole lot of, oh, let's just all have different meetings and try to get to the answer before we get to the boardroom. You're actually meant to have that discussion in the boardroom. And a good board does. And hopefully people at a board meeting will come with lots of different ideas. So I may be opposed to it, but I go in wanting to hear all the people who support it, and, you know, I, I don't go in with a firm view because that's that's why you hopefully have a high-caliber board with a lot of diversity of backgrounds, of experiences, of attitudes, of everything, so that you just get the best kind of conversation on the table when you're in the room. That's really how it should work. The other sort of another nuance on that, though, is, you know, if you're a board director and you feel really strongly about a certain topic that needs change, sometimes – The the thing with the board director is that it's a long game. You don't come in and go, okay, I run this place. I'm going to change that tomorrow. We're going to clear out all the, you know, butcher shops and make this big change in the company. You you know, you sort of have to realize that I'm going to bring it up at this meeting. Maybe won't get much traction. I'll do some more work. I'll talk to the people offline. I'll build my case. I'll bring it up again. And it can take a long time, but if it's something really important, you will eventually gain traction amongst both executives and boards. And, and that's kind of how you can have influence. So having influence as a director is really different than as an executive, because you don't have overt power, you just have to kind of make your case. And I think having good relationships with people always helps.
0: On that point, Holly, a question that came up from all the people that I reached out to for research is ask Holly, has she become more courageous over time now that you're more senior? I don't know if you've reflected on that question, but how would you answer that if if I'm putting you on the spot here? Have you become more courageous over time as you become more senior? Uh,
1: I think the answer is yes, absolutely, except for when it comes to like I used to be super courageous doing bungee jumping and jumping out of airplanes, (laughs) and now that I'm reaching an age where I'm smart enough to realize (laughs) (laughs) that I ought to be careful. I'm a little bit less courageous in that part of my life and that type of risk-taking. But I think in terms of business and the boardroom, you know, uh, you can't underestimate the value of experience. And I know now I'm gonna start to sound like an old person, but you know, when you've been on, worked in a lot of companies and a lot of industries and been on a lot of boards through a lot of experiences, you just gain experience and you've seen things before and you get good instincts and you learn to listen to your instinct. I think also I have over time, become more confident in my, you know, understanding and conviction. And as I said, there was a lot of imposter syndrome and, oh, I don't know, and maybe I'm not right and all that kind of questioning of myself. You know, I, you, you've got to be careful. You don't sort of then think you're right all the time, but I think you've got to you build more confidence in your instincts would be the way I'd put it. So I would say as a board director, I probably am more confident and more willing to speak up. And if people kind of all go, oh, no, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I will think to myself actually i do know what i'm talking about i'm gonna have another go at this not oh they're all right i must not know what i'm talking about so i think that just comes with age experience you know and having done the job for a while you 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 gain that kind of confidence
0: Mm. i want to zoom out and and you talk about your career a lot of people might hear this and go wow holly's had a successful career and it's up and to the right and Everything's been rosy and happy days, but I'm sure there's been some knocks along the way and some painful, painful moments. And I'll set the scene for you and then you can choose which way you want to go. Is there a painful learning from your board career or your executive career that you look back on that was tough in the moment, but taught you a lot in hindsight?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I've had tough experiences, you know, probably on most of my boards at one time or another, but, you know, undoubtedly the most challenging experience I had was my time on the AMP board. And I, it was the, I think it was the second board that I joined, you know, so I was sort of a few months into being a board director when I joined the AMP board and, you know, credit to AMP, I did not have financial experience financial services background, but they were really trying to build uh, relationships with customers. They wanted someone who understood customer engagement, retail, and so forth. So I think the challenge though, and remember when I said in my exec career, I wanted to both go from being functional to running a PL and then I change industries. I think same in the board, you know, I was new to being a board director, so I didn't have all the skills of being a board director. And I was new to financial services. So both of those were challenging. Anyway, not long into my AMP career, the Royal Commission came along and AMP, for various reasons, wound up in the spotlight quite dramatically and significantly. And the chair had put three women up for re election at the upcoming AGM. So it was just this I, I, I call it a black swan event because to have been put up for re election, to have been brand new to the company, for the World Commission to come and to examine issues that had happened many years before I joined put me in a really kind of strange position of being on the front page of the paper, being branded a criminal and a thief and we stole money and we lied to Cheryl. I mean it was really quite brutal and and painful and traumatic and in the early days, you know, the Prime Minister, I remember I was overseas leading a, a, a delegation um, on an overseas trip and the Prime Minister came out and said, all these board directors will go to jail for what they've done. You know, that's pretty shocking and and scary. And also, as a board, you're getting legal advice about what you can say and you can't say and you're in the media every day and you are getting, you know, people are calling for heads and they want everyone to step down. And it was the right thing to step down and take accountability, even though you weren't even here for all of this, or was the right thing to try to stay and right the ship. And they're really difficult questions and they're all, you know, in the heat of a media frenzy. And, and in my case, being overseas and trying to do one thing during the day and then being on phone calls and dealing with all these things at night. So it was, look, in hindsight it's been quite a few years now i think probably for the financial services industry net net the royal commission was a wake up call for an industry and so you know i'm not bitter and twisted about the fact that there was a royal commission and probably if it's brought that industry to be more focused on non financial risk and on customers then that's great it's been you know it's positive some people were just unfairly vilified um i i not not talking about myself but others who became absolutely just crucified by the media, I, I think, unfairly. You know, you have to kind of, uh, you have to just be a bit philosophical about being in the wrong place at the wrong time and knowing that you can only just make the best decisions that you can at any point in time. Personally, yeah, I was coming home with a barrel and poor Mel's going out to talk to neighbours who were going, did Holly really do all these terrible things? Is, you know, is all this true? So... You, you kind of have to you have to take stock and go, well, well, my family has confidence in me. My close friends have confidence in me. This may be the end of my career for, you know, I think things that were not necessarily my doing. But if it is, that's not the end of the world. I, I, I've got a great home and a great family, great friends and, you know, I can work in shops and I can, you know, maybe I'll buy that pub I always wanted to buy. And, you know, like you just, you have to get yourself in a headspace where you go, okay, this could all go terribly, terribly badly, but I'm going to be okay. And then you just focus on, you know, getting advice from different people, finding people you trust and just kind of, you know, working your way through it.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. And and based on what I understand, that actually opened up more doors for you. A lot more phone calls came a period after that right because you had this experience and these scars that could benefit other boards
1: takes a little while <laughs> <laughs> okay. i think people need to make sure that you're not the evil villain that the media wanted to kind of portray you as as a group yeah. um but you know in the end no one was ever you know it was all you know and I, and i think hmm. largely most people have come through that and the world has recognized that yeah the industry did some you know, not good things. Really did, but to kind of at a point in time find one person and pin it all on them is just is is not really right either. And mm-hmm. and eventually people recognize that that's valuable. It mm. maybe not right away, but down the track.
0: Yeah, I, I think one of the stories I've heard is is Gordon Keynes, the former Woolworths chair, was a great supporter of your of you personally. So I won't go into that, but that's what I've heard, which is which is nice of, of him. Um I, I wanna go into your you you mentioned one of your interest areas now is climate and sustainability, and it's a critical area for the world and for businesses. And and I know a lot of boards are focusing on that. I mean, some of your boards in Woolworths and Fonterra are very public about it. I've worked with Woolworths over the years and they're I think do a great job at it. I'd be curious, how did you like make that conscious decision to go climate as an area you can add value in, and and back to learning? Did you have to yeah. reach out to people or go do courses <laughs> and up, increase your skill set in climate?
1: I'll try not to make this story too long, but you know, when I said early on that my career has kind of just evolved and I've gone from opportunity to opportunity, and you know that's great; it's worked out well. The the downside was that I sort of a couple of years ago realized that I, I have a lot of breadth. I, you know, I know a lot of sectors, I've done a lot of different things, but there's no kind of common theme and common focus. And as I kind of reach a stage in my career where I think, wow, over the next 10 years, I really want to try to have the most impact. I think to have impact, you need to kind of have more focus. And so I very consciously, thought to myself if i want to kind of narrow my portfolio not broaden it but narrow it and and have more focus so that i can have more impact what are what are the areas that would make sense for me to do that what what's my passion and you know how how can i have the greatest impact oh. and i did that quite consciously and i spent quite a long time thinking about it because i'm involved in so many different areas and i've done so many different charitable things like you know what really matters and, and just at the same time, I was, I joined the board of Fonterra, which is a big dairy company in New Zealand. And I had started chairing again, thanks to Gordon, who you mentioned, who was a big lifelong supporter of mine, which I was very grateful and very grateful. He suggested I take over chairing the sustainability committee at Woolworths. And what happened by being on both of those boards and, and looking at sustainability was what dawned on me was not only that climate change is quite serious and quite confronting and and you know there's so much to be done if we want to kind of leave a world for our kids, which is you know not remarkably worse off than the one that we're in. Um, we need to do something about it and I had visibility of the food system from end to end you know starting with the farmers and and actually we live in the southern highlands we live on a property so we've got some cattle and livestock ourselves so you know from the producer end all the way through to woollies to the plate, the food system is one which, from a sustainability and a climate perspective, is sort of the most impacted by climate change. As you can imagine, farmers, when, you know, there's no rain and the droughts and the floods and everything, they're the most impact, have the most impact. On the other hand, we can't just get out of them like fossil fuels. We need to eat. And so we're going to have an even bigger population. And so how do we transform the food system so that it's more sustainable and that is a big challenge and i think in australia it's getting much less focused than the other parts of the transition and maybe for good reason but you know the energy transition is largely front and center in in business and government and elsewhere so so that was it i came to that view i thought i'm in a great position between fonterra woolies and subsequently i've joined a bank board so you know you need finance to kind of help manage this transition and Literally, Vidit, it was like starting from scratch as a new person starting a career. I thought, I don't know enough people in agriculture. I don't know people in sustainability. This is a whole new world. I know a bit, but not much. And I have just dived into, you know, you were talking about your discretionary time. My discretionary time when I'm not doing puzzles out in the garden is reading (laughs) books, reports, podcasts, meeting people in sustainability I made a list of all the people I knew. I knocked on doors. I said, who can you introduce me to? And Martaine Wilder, who I think was one of your obvious, did a previous podcast. I just, I basically cold called. I just said, you're an important person in climate. You're doing great things. I want to meet you. Can I meet you? And I suppose it helps being on boards of companies that people recognize. So they give you the time, but most people will give you the time, no matter who you are. I find you just have to ask. And so I just literally pound the pavement go to lunches and dinners and meet people and this is my passion and I think it's important and I think it's interesting and I think it needs a lot of focus and and it's given me just kind of a whole new... Feeling of energy and momentum, so it's a bit of a like of a late career sort of mm. <laughs> reinvention. Maybe because I'm a marketer, I you know I'm, I'm happy with this whole reinvention idea. But yeah, it's something I, I'm really passionate about, and I think when you're in roles like the ones I have, it's really quite a privilege. And you know you should try to do as much as you can with with that sort of responsibility.
0: Mm, I love it. I think as you said, you're one of the rare people who likes being out of your comfort zone because i think a lot of people will be comfortable with their comfort zone and and do what they know so kudos to you and and i know you've spoken to a lot of the previous guests in in climate i think one area that we can talk about after the recording is is i think using venture capital so i've been in the vc space and particularly over the last year i think climate tech is getting a lot of um positive attention and there's a lot of capital being used so i'm sure that's an area that you're considering
1: that's my fourth board. I'm on a small, small ag tech startup up in Brisbane that I think is developing one of the most exciting climate solutions that I've come across. So I'm trying to get involved at all levels because there's great learnings in that. But I think I've met lots of fantastic VC people because, you know, I think the nice thing about this area is it's kind of a nice intersection of, you know, commerce and, and purpose because, Mm -hmm. All the people are very passionate, the people who work in this space are very passionate about making the world a better place, but realize that for any of these solutions to work, they've got to be commercial. You know, you can't just say to a farmer, oh, you've got to invest, you know, thousands of dollars to make your farm more sustainable they'll say, fine, where's the return? Where's the business model? And so I think the fact is that things have to be commercial in order to be truly sustainable. So it's kind of a nice marriage. And I think the VCs are doing a great job of really trying to hone in on where can these like investments have really good returns.
0: Yeah. And it goes against the traditional software area of investment, something hardware as an area that you know, well, it requires support because I really believe climate is a physical problem, not a software problem. So I think that'll be interesting of the next year. I would love to keep going, but we're running short in time, Holly. So I'd love to move to a rapid fire final sprint. Is there one non-work investment you've made that you consider the best in your life?
1: I'll just give you a property class, sorry, an investment class and that's property. Just we've never done badly on property and whether it's our own or investment properties, you know, it's the great Australian love affair with property and and I, I'm all in.
0: Yeah. Is there one thing you want to learn in the next six months?
1: Yeah. I want to learn everything that I don't know about agriculture, sustainability and natural capital solutions. So I'm voracious in my... <laughs> yeah,
0: it uh, sounds like you've got a busy couple of months coming up, so that, that should be good. Is there one hobby or activity you do each week to be at your best mentally and physically?
1: Yeah, I'm kind of obsessed with every day I do Wordle and I do Spelling Bee. They're both on New York Times. And then I actually have a puzzle, like a physical one. So I do my virtual and my physical puzzle all the time. You know, like it's an obsession.
0: (laughs) Nice. And last one, is there a person or quote that inspires you today?
1: There's just can I give you a couple? Cause they're like boring quotes that everyone uses all the time, but I was thinking about my quote and, you know, before I take a risk, cause I'm a real risk taker, I always go, what's the worst that can happen? I was saying, you know, you stare into what could happen. And then I think I also mentioned, you know, you ask for, you, it's better to, to beg for forgiveness than to ask for permission. So, you know, I'm kind of just a real go for it, but then sometimes things go wrong. So I always go with the, what doesn't kill you. And so I've got sort of my, if it all goes pear-shaped, that's how I think about it. And the last one is another, these are all my favorites. So I can't just pick one, is one I heard Martin say also, I couldn't believe when he said it, but at the end of the day, you know, when you get to you know, these big jobs and all that stuff, you can, you know, you can start to think you are really clever or whatever, you're really successful. And, you know, Martine said it. Actually, it was my husband's father, who I never got to meet, unfortunately, who said the cemetery is filled with indispensable people. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, we're all here for a period of time we all kind of come in the same way and go out the same way. So, you know, I think we just do the best that we can and never get too carried away with thinking that you're, you know, you're all that important. Um,
0: Mm, Absolutely. um, I mean, I I heard one the other day that I've got on my desk here is optimism is a moral duty. I think that's a great, great line. It was said by one of the Historians back in the day, and I found it the other day, so I've got that on my desk now. Um,
1: Optimism. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write that one down. I I raised my daughter on being cup half full, but you know, I think this is the next. This is the next (laughs) step
0: up. Yeah, optimism is a a moral duty. So I quite like that one. Um, But that that brings us to the finish line. I'm so glad we made this happen, Holly Kramer. Thank you for joining me.
1: it? It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: Well. There you have it. That's my conversation with Holly Kramer in this episode 152. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This felt like a really natural chat with Holly, and I'm glad she felt comfortable sharing so many aspects of her life and work she hasn't shared before. Whether it would be the challenging time during the AMP board crisis that played out in the media, or her learnings in her various career transitions, or the desire to want to start a family. As always, let me know your thoughts in the conversation, all my details in the show notes, and I'll catch you soon.